We continue our work through the book of Ephesians, and we come now to the fourth chapter, the first 16 verses. Now, what we need to do this morning as we turn to the fourth chapter, working through these verses, is to survey these first 16 verses in a broad sort of way. And then, Lord willing, the next week and the week after, we will come back and focus on certain themes that are found within these verses that deserve uh, greater attention. But I think it's important for us to see the flow of these first 16 verses. Let me remind you that the authority is in the text. It's the minister's call to expound the text and preach Christ from the text. And so as we preach through these books of the Bible and through these passages, it will help you immensely to have the Bible open and to follow along throughout the sermon. Let's pray before reading this portion of God's Word. We ask, Heavenly Father, that since we are your people, a pilgrim people, on our way to heaven, that you will help us to live under the authority of your Word, that thought, mind, word, deed, action, all of us, all about us, will be submitted to the authority of your Word. Help us to learn this Word. Help us to learn the details. Help us to care about what is in every passage. Help us to be willing to use our minds, which are renewed by the Holy Spirit, so that we may understand the texts before us even today. And we pray that your people will be built up in the most holy faith, but also that those who are outside of Christ, who do not know him, that as they see your people worshiping the true and living God and hear the word of God expounded, that they may be called out of darkness into light out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's own dear Son, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, the first 16 verses. This is the word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, when you see, therefore, you should ask what it is there for. And the verse begins with, I, therefore. What the Apostle Paul is telling us is that we are now turning the page. He is going to take all of the wonderful truths, all of the doctrine that he has expounded in the first three chapters, and now he begins to make application in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so the Apostle Paul says, therefore, on the basis of everything that I've said to you about your union with Christ in those first three chapters, I'm calling upon you to walk worthily of that calling. Now, in this particular passage before us today, the way in which we walk worthily of our calling is to promote the peace of the church, the unity of the church. And I would begin simply by saying that the Apostle Paul has a very high doctrine of the church, and I'm asking you, do you? Uh, Do you have a high view of the place of the church in your life? Do you have a biblical view? Is it possible for us to love Christ and not love his bride? And so we should love the church. And one thing that should happen at the end of this sermon is that we should, as believers, walk out of this place loving the church even more than we did because we love Christ, the head of the church, even more than we did when we began. So the very first thing we see as we turn to this passage is that we are called to walk worthily of our calling. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now you know what he means by call. In Paul it always means the effectual call. It means the drawing of the Holy Spirit through the Father's having given the Spirit the Son having given the Spirit in order that we may be drawn out of darkness into light. The Lord calls His elect effectually through the gospel, enabling us to trust in Christ, granting us saving faith, and also that call extends all the way through the Christian life, enabling us to grow in grace. And what Paul is saying is the privileges of God's gracious calling also call us to be gracious people. And he lists five ways in which we are to be gracious people. Or to put it another way, five ways in order to walk worthily of your calling. The first is found here in verse 2. Humility. Humility is produced by understanding more and more what Christ has done for us. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. That the Son of God assumed human nature and went to a cross. And there he shed his blood and died for us. Surely humility is produced when we reflect on our privileges in Christ as seen in these first three chapters. We've received undeserved honor through what Christ has done for us. There is therefore no room for boasting we are to be humble people to one another because we are humbled under the mighty hand of God and what he has done for us in Jesus. The next way in which you walk worthily of your calling is by being gentle. And so he says so in verse 2, gentleness. Jesus himself in Matthew 11 spoke of his own gentle spirit and gentle heart. 
one who was gentle is slow to insist on his own rights. Now think of Christ here who gave himself for our sins. Our society is rights-obsessed, and often the church is as well. But a gentle person is one who takes wrong rather than inflicts wrong. The third way in which we are called to walk worthily is by being patient, also found here in verse 2. Patience or long-suffering. Actually, you could translate it being long-tempered. Rather than short-tempered, be long-tempered. Patience in the Christian finds its prototype in God himself, who is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because God is patient with me, it is consistent with my calling to be patient with others. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And so we walk worthily of our calling by humility, gentleness, patience, but fourthly, Again, found in verse 2, by bearing with one another in love. Now, this does not mean I must put up with my neighbor outwardly, but boil within against him. Someone has paraphrased what Paul is saying this way. With all modesty and humbleness of spirit, with unruffled temper, lovingly putting up with all that is disagreeable in other people. That's how we walk worthily of our calling by bearing with one another in love. And the fifth way in which we walk worthily of our calling is found in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now this word eager is a continuative present participle. And so that means that you don't simply be eager at one time and then go on and no longer be eager to do this, but having begun in the power of the Spirit to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, this is going to be the ongoing characteristic of your Christian life and your Christian walk. The word eager here is from the Greek word spudadzo, which can be translated to hasten, to hurry, to be zealous, to be eager, to take pains, to make every effort. And so you see what Paul is saying. He is saying you must put everything you have, all that you are, into promoting the peace of the body of Christ, to seek the peace of the church, to live in accord with the unity that is ours in the source of that unity, which is the Holy Spirit. This then is what Paul means when he tells us to live worthily of the calling with which we have been called. You are called, live therefore as one who is called. There is the indicative, chapters 1 through 3, this is who you are in union with Christ. There is the imperative, therefore, how you are to live out of the fullness of who you are in Christ, beginning here in chapter 4. What are the characteristics then of one who is living out his union with Christ? Well, here they are. It's very simple. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And let me say to you, the world can imitate, but the world cannot give these graces. These graces come only through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. These graces, if they are true and real, come only through the application of the gospel to our hearts. 
through the powerful calling of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is now calling on the Ephesian Christians to walk worthily of all of the privileges that we have in Christ that he has underscored in chapters 1 through 3. He's turning to the application and he's saying, you have heard the doctrine, you have heard the privileges, you have heard these things, now by virtue of God's call on your lives, work out these things in your relationships. Let these things begin to apply in the way in which you live one with another. Paul knew that only as we understand our position in Christ will we be able to practice Christian living in a way that is congruous with that position. He does not jump immediately into application. He spends three chapters working out in detail Christian doctrine, and then he spends three chapters applying it. Why does he do that? Because Paul knows you will live as you think. And if you're thinking in the way that we find in those first three chapters, then you will begin to live the way that he calls you to live in chapters four through six. It's hopeless simply to go to the application and say, I'm going to live this way, hang the doctrine. The doctrine is fundamental. It is God's truth upon which you are to build your Christian living. So if you have a low view of the place of doctrine in the Christian life, you need to repent. That's sin. That's not biblical. Now let me remind you once again of those privileges that are ours in Christ as found in those first three chapters. Who does Paul say we are? What are the privileges that we have in Christ? Let me remind you once again. People of God, he tells us in chapters 1 through 3 that you are saints. That you are elect that you are adopted by God's predestinating decree through Christ's blood, that you are redeemed, that you are sealed with the Spirit as a down payment, that you are made alive in Christ, you are reconciled, you have access to God, you are fellow citizens with the saints, you are members of God's household, you are an integral part of God's building, You are God's sanctuary indwelt by the Spirit. Now, Paul is saying your calling by God confirms all these blessings to you. Walk worthily of these realities. Live in light of these realities. Treat one another as one who knows these things to be true of me. So are you redeemed by the precious blood of Christ? Are you a member of his body? Are you a living member of his building, a part of his holy temple in which he dwells, then order your choices and your life's behavior in light of these things. So this is the question. Are you doing this? Am I doing this? Are you living consistently in light of your privileges in view of your holy calling? Do these realities determine your choices in life, the direction of your life? If not, then change. Start today living life worthily of your calling. Are we more influenced by the world than by our calling in Christ? Paul says, here is who you are. Give diligence to exercising these Christian graces. And when you do that, you are promoting the unity of the church. Which leads us to the second thing we want to see in the text. We are called to promote the unity of the church. Promote the unity of the church. And we find this in verses 4 through 6, and we'll be referencing that in a moment. 
Well, let me say, first of all, when we think of the unity of the church, that we should remember that unity is a gift. And because it is a gift, it is also our calling to promote it. H.C.G. Mule put it this way, its deadly enemy, the enemy of unity, its deadly enemy, the spirit of self, is here commanded to depart in the name of our heavenly calling, which calling us to Christ calls us immeasurably above the miserable self-seeking and self-assertion which dislocate and disintegrate the union of souls. Beyond question, the apostle means a unity which is tangible, practical, and working. So notice with me in these verses how the Apostle Paul, as he calls us to promote the unity of the church, notice how he describes the unity of the body. Well, first of all, he describes the church as a body. You find it here in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. One body. We are the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5, in Christ. We who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul emphasizes the body image when he speaks of the church is simply because he wants to stress our mutual dependence one on another. So we are one body. We also are possessed of one spirit. We find that also here in verse 4. One spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. The body is one and is the product of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So the body of Christ, the church, is not something that man produces. It's not a voluntary society. It is the Holy Spirit that produces the church. The Holy Spirit produces the calling, the tasks, And it is not a merely humanly devised organization. Those who are her members are possessed of the Holy Spirit. But also he says in verse 4, the unity of the church is described in our one hope. Our one hope. The one spirit produces one hope. That is to say, one expectation of the return of Jesus Christ and of the new heavens and the new earth and of the blessing of an imperishable inheritance that awaits us. And this this hope permeated the New Testament. And the New Testament Christians were filled with this hope, and I want us to be as well. Then he goes on in verse 5, and he describes our unity as unity around one Lord. One Lord. Kyrios. The New Testament equivalent for Yahweh in the Old Testament, he is saying Jesus is God. Jesus is Jehovah, the covenant Lord, and we have unity in him. He says one faith in verse 5, probably meaning as Scott puts it, it is better to take the whole sentence as expressive of a single fundamental fact, one Lord in whom we all believe and in whose name we have been baptized. So he goes on to say, we have one baptism. What he means by this is that in baptism we have the evidence that Jew and Gentile and all sorts of people from all walks of life share indiscriminately in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all the baptized are one covenant people. I read recently of a Hindu who came to faith in Christ. This was some time ago, but I read it recently. 
And he had actually been of such a caste that he was worshipped before he came to faith in Christ. And of course all of that ended when he was baptized. When he was on his deathbed, he emphatically repeated the words, One baptism. Now why would someone do that on his deathbed? Well, because he understood that among other things, the unity with one another in the body of Christ is demonstrated in our baptism. And then in verse 6, we see the unity of the body listed in a seventh way. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that God is in overall control, the Father is through all, that is through the church, since we are God's habitation through the blessing of Christ's mediation, and He is in all because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now these are the ways in which Paul describes the unity of the church, and he is saying when you walk worthily of your calling, you are promoting an understanding and an appreciation of this unity. There's something else about unity. I wonder if you noticed as we read together here that's so important. The unity of the church is Trinitarian. Did you see it? We have the Spirit who is mentioned. We have the Lord who is Jesus who is mentioned. We have the one God and Father who is over all who is mentioned. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is mentioned in this section because the unity of the body of Christ is Trinitarian in nature. William Hendrickson put it beautifully, we worship one God, not three gods. Though it is true that Scripture ascribes election especially to the Father, redemption especially to the Son, and sanctification especially to the Spirit, yet in each of these departments all cooperate. The three never work at cross-purposes, As has often been remarked, the Father thought our salvation, the Son bought it, the Spirit wrought it. Moreover, the unity amid the diversity which pertains to the Trinity is the basis for the essential unity in the midst of the circumstantial variety which characterizes the church. That's a profound statement. The unity of the church is around, flows from, out of, the essence of God as triune. Think of the church for a moment as music. Think of the church as music. I'm going to read a quotation to you from Bob Lefham, my friend Robert Lefham, in his great book on the Trinity that um, is, a, is a must read. I'm breaking into a context, but Dr. Lefham says, music demonstrates unity and diversity very clearly. We noted how Western classical music emerged in a culture formed by Christianity and how its central features mirror the works of God. Purpose, movement toward a goal, and resolution. Its unity and diversity is heard in a variety of instruments, combining to play one integrated piece. This is particularly obvious in chamber music, where the various instruments can be heard distinctly within the overall score. String quartets feature this prominently, especially those of the classical period, Haydn, Mozart, the early Beethoven, which were composed in a conversational style, the voices interacting. However, it is also obvious as the genre develops with the radical changes made by Beethoven, 
I suppose a trio mirrors the Trinity even more evidently than a quartet. We referred to Beethoven's Archduke trio earlier, but this is merely one example, albeit a particularly wonderful one. The two major challenges to the Christian faith today, the postmodern thinking of our own culture and Islam, are both deviations from the created order of unity and diversity and diversity in unity that the Holy Trinity has embedded in the world. In order for Christian missions to be effective in both settings, this root question must be effectively addressed. Unless this is done, the ministry of the gospel in these contexts will be blunted. Now this is probably more profound than any of us realize. That as we think of the church, we can think of the church as music. Classical music in Western culture is developed out of an appreciation of a doctrine of God that is no longer pervasive in our culture. And the result in our culture is that we have diversity with no unity. But as you look at the world and you look at the news and you see what is happening with Islam, there you have an approach of unity with no diversity. Do you see it? We have in the church God's own third way. Diversity in unity and unity in diversity. We're not with our culture. No unifying principle, only diversity. We're not with Islam, only unity, no diversity. There is diversity in unity and unity in diversity. Why? Because in the essence of God, there is unity in diversity and diversity in unity. And we are God's creation, His special people that are called upon to reflect the unity within the Trinity itself. So when you love your brother, when you show gentleness and kindness, when you appreciate your brother's gift or your sister's gift, when you appreciate the unity of the body of Christ, you are reflecting the essence of God from which our unity flows. And if that does not raise to the highest possible level my desire and yours to promote the unity of the body of Christ, then what will? But as we survey these verses, there's one other thing I want us to see. And it is that our unity is around the Word of God. And this is found in verses 11 and following primarily. Let me simply say this. We'll be looking at this passage more next week, Lord willing. The ascended Christ has given gifts to his church, and one of those gifts is the gift of pastor-teacher. Now the purpose of the pastor-teacher is to shepherd and to instruct the church. And here I want to make one essential point, just one. Our unity is around the word. The place of the word proclaimed and taught is central to the unified life of the church. And one of the things that that should mean for your life and for mine is this. If I could paraphrase my friend Jay Adams. Only those who ruminate upon God's word day and night will resist temptations to compromise. 
Only those who ruminate upon God's Word day and night will have a mind and a heart and a will that is formed after the pattern of Christ. Only those of us who ruminate upon God's Word day and night, who long to hear it preached, who want to read it, who dwell upon it constantly, only then will we resist the temptations to compromise with the world around us. I'm serious, folks. There's no other way. God the Spirit uses His Word. If we are not in the Word, then we will not display these graces. The Christian minister, the Christian in the pew, we must be radically into studying the Scriptures or we will be deceived by the world around us and temptation within. And that is why God has given the minister, the pastor, teacher, and why you should be praying constantly that we bring the depths of God's Word to you Lord's Day after Lord's Day. So would you promote the unity of the church The unity is around the Word of God, so let's get in the Word, get in the Word, get in the Word, get the Word deep, deep, deep down in our hearts and in our lives. If you're lost, you don't care anything about this. We call you to faith in Christ. If you're a genuine Christian, this should resonate with your soul. Eric Sauer made the statement, the direction of a man's thought is always the decisive factor in his personality. The direction of a man's thought is always the decisive factor in his personality. His whole outer life will be determined by the inward inclination of his mind. So if your mind is formed by God's Word, then you will live one way. You will think one way, act one way. If your, your mind is formed by the world around you rather than by God's Word, you're flippant about the Word, you do not spend time in the Word, you do not meditate upon it day and night, then you're going to live another way. It's really that, that black and white. It's really that simple. Does that make sense to you? I mean, seriously, young people, this, I mean, this is very serious. You go off to college, you're not in the Word, you'll fall. You're in the Word, people will see Christ in your life. Let me bring this together with some concluding applications. Let me give you about five, maybe. All right, the first is just to mention the bond that we have, the unity that we have one with another is, first of all, doctrinal. It is in truth. So we should be learning all that we can about the truth of God's Word because our bond is doctrinal. Paul bases Christian living on doctrine. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are an example of this. The bond also, secondly, is ethical. The bond is ethical. It is the working out of truth in how we live and how we walk. And then thirdly, the bond shows and is strengthened in an humble, gentle, and patient attitude toward one another. What does that mean? It means that in my life, I'm going to be Christ-exalting and self-abasing. Christ-exalting and self-abasing. One of the old writers said, It is the purpose of God to stain the pride of human glory, and His purpose shall stand. And it should be the purpose of my life to stain my own glory and to exalt Jesus Christ in His glory, so that He alone should be glorified and honored. That's 
what God has recreated us for in Christ. But then fourthly, to be very blunt about it, the bond of unity is promoted right where you are. I know some people who think about the unity of the church, and what they do is they think about the church out there, this kind of ethereal idea of the church out there. The emphasis of the New Testament is on local bodies. It's not ethereal, it's concrete. It's right here where we are. Some people think about the unity of the church out there and don't give a fig about the unity of the church right where they are. So who are the Christians with whom you are closest? Well, for most of us, it's in our homes. Do you ever think of that? You think of the church as something out there. You might even think of Covenant Presbyterian. The church is also right there in your home, the church under your roof. The Christians with whom you are closest, right there in your homes. So here is where our children learn to be good church members. Here's where they learn, verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. Are you walking worthily? Are you humble and gentle and patient and forbearing, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Are you, to use verse 15, speaking the truth in love in your homes? So how about this? Let me speak to the men. How about this, husband? All right. Do you take your calling seriously in Christ and how you treat your wife? Rather than being humble, are you proud? Rather than being gentle, are you rude? Are you demanding? Rather than being patient, are you hasty? Is the unity of Christ's church promoted? Is the bond of peace strengthened in the way in which you relate to your wife and to your children? Do you speak the truth in love, or do you blast your wife with your words? Not living this way? Well, how can we expect our sons to learn how to treat a woman if we're not living this way? How can we expect our children to learn how to be good church members if we're not living this way? If they do not see us confessing our sins, believing, repenting, and living with this kind of gentleness and kindness with our wives. So not doing this? All right, men. All right, I preach to myself. All right, men, man up. Man up. And let the men of this church be the servant leaders that the Lord has ordained us to be. Living this way with our wives and in our homes. And then one final thing. A fifth fifth thing. Application. This bond of union that we have with one another is a bond that we have that flows out of union with the ascended Christ. Remember chapter 1? We are in union with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. The ascended Christ is the one with whom we have union, and therefore 
since you are in union with Christ. No real believer has any excuse for failing to promote unity in the body. The enablement is there for every Christian who asks for it. God's people said, Amen. Amen.